0: You're listening to episode 31 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film. From the obscure to the mainstream. And
1: now, on with the show! Ah!
0: 1976. A year that would bring us prestige films such as All The President's Men, Network, and Hitchcock's final film, Family Plot. Matt Simber would release this deliciously devious psych-horror hybrid, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, that some years later would find itself classified in the UK as a video nasty. So hold tight as we go full Sigmund Freud and open Pandora's box to reveal there's more going on in this hidden gem than merely blood and guts.
1: So welcome everybody to Video Nasty Month. This is something that we've been thinking about for quite a while and it's now reality. I'm very excited. Are you excited? I am definitely excited. (laughs) We
0: have entered the spooky season. We are two days away
1: from October, Wayne. Mm -hmm. We will be hitting that Halloween month. Being a film podcast, when it comes around to October, it's inevitable we're going to be covering something Halloween related, something horror related. And we thought this was... This was an interesting idea to do Interesting this. way, and
0: very British. <laughs> it, it's, not, it, it's not even the sense that the films themselves are British, no. but the idea of the video nasty is very British, isn't mm-hmm. it? You have been warned is the message to video retailers from the director of public prosecutions. If you stock any of the 62 titles on a list circulated by Scotland Yard, you could end up in court. We certainly saw in 1982 a series of videos which depicted... Uh, mutilation, it depicted death, it depicted violence, which we felt enough was enough and took action to stop the growing spread of this form of violence. Respectable video traders have long been pushing for some indication of what they can and cannot safely offer the public.
1: It will now show us well our members can stock or they cannot stock. This has been something we've been wanting now for two, two and a half years. It's varied from area to area. We've had various members going to prison on offences. We've had people being under the threat of prosecution for various other offences. Hopefully now uh, we'll know what is right and what is wrong. Yes, we welcome it.
0: The list doesn't solve everything. Shops like this make sure they only stock videos that have passed the film censors. But some of those now blacked have already been shown legally at public cinemas. If video retailers stock them though, they can still be prosecuted. It's hoped such anomalies will disappear when the new video recordings bill becomes law later this year. Then in the same way that there are age and other restrictions on who can see what in the cinema, the distribution of videos will be much more tightly controlled. Look, we kind of got through this on the censor episode. It's very interesting to you know film
1: fans it's 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 kind of idiosyncratic to the british audience Mm -hmm, yeah it's kind of a demonstration of how films at the time kind of reflected the time period or were somehow indicative of the time period and you know what
0: wayne yeah a lot of these films they're not as salacious as they were made to be no they're not and
1: a lot of them and i think our choices will prove this (laughs) are actually very good Yeah, a lot of them are very good. I think the problem is they get overlooked because they're controversial and that's like the only thing people know about them. But yeah, a lot of them do have a lot of merit. They were very interesting films, like you say, very idiosyncratic.
0: But have you noticed a lot of these films, they aren't as bloody, they're not as explicit, they're not as gory, whatever adjective you want to use. Some of them, like the film we're covering today, which we teased in our, you know, our House of the Devil episode. So I hope our audience (laughs) has, you know, had a week to gestate on that. And I hope a lot of you have have went out and watched The Witch Who Came From the Sea. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this film, specifically this film, Wayne, is dealing with very important issues.
1: It is. Not bloody and gory issues. This is actually much deeper psychological issues. And that's something that comes up on a lot on our podcast. We like to talk about deep psychological issues depicted in film.
0: Wayne? Yes. Are we psychologically damaged in any way? No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a strong possibility. It it is. But I think that's what makes it so interesting listening to us discuss this. I hope so. So, look,
0: we (laughs) we want to get to this film. But, Wayne, you know, let's summarise. Summarise for the people what is what we're referring to for, you know, the layman. What is a video nasty?
1: Okay, so the video nasties. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was this influx of these cheap exploitation movies. Yes. Sex, nudity, blood, violence. Are you mentioning
0: the good stuff, where? This is the good stuff, right, yeah. Yes. A lot
1: of these taboo subjects that came in, and what happened is, back at the time, especially in the UK, the BBFC, the B- uh, British Board of Film Classification, yep. I believe, uh, films had to be screened for this organisation before they made it into cinemas. But, because of some loophole, videos didn't. So you had this this wealth of all these cheap exploitation films that came into the country, one of the first big ones being Cannibal Holocaust. And essentially at the time, it set it just set people off. It was The country, you know, there was bad stuff going at the time. There was poverty and there was wide joblessness. And a lot of these films were actually, for some reason, blamed for a lot of this.
0: You're almost saying, Wayne, they are the Marlon Manson of the 1980s. Basically, yes. They are.
1: In fact, it's even been pointed out, I think it was Mark Kermode uh, said at the time, well, said in recent years, that these films became the scapegoats for the trouble at time. Like, what do we blame this on? It's video nasties. We talked about in House of the Devil, the satanic panic, which was happening around the same time. I believe that uh, research is taking
0: place and it will show that these films not only affect young people, but I believe they affect
1: adults as well. It goes far too far.
0: And this kind of fits almost in with the Satanic Panic, blaming something on an exterior what doesn't necessarily relate to
1: the circumstance. No, absolutely not. In fact, you mentioned before, they're not as gory and not as bloody. You'll get tentpole cinema releases around Halloween which are far bloody than this. Something like Hostel or... The the new Texas Chainsaw Mask came out. A lot of those are far bloodier than do Oh, keep teasing me, Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) But because of the time they came out, yeah, they were highly taboo. There was about, in the UK, about 72 films that were banned. 72? Yes, and we're talking titles like Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox, I Spit on Your Grave, Last House on the Left, Faces of Death, even... Sam Raimi's great, The Evil Dead. The Evil that Dead was. On the was? List. Not prosecuted, but it was on the video nasty list at the time.
0: I wonder if we'll get around to Carnival Holocaust, Wayne. Ooh. Ooh. Is, is that, that a tease? Is that, that, that a tease, Wayne?
1: That is a tease. <laughs> What's wrong with the Italians? But, I don't know. It was uh, Deodato. Yeah, Reguero Deodato. Ruggiero, Deodato. Deodato. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was... You know, they like their carnivals. Yeah. They like their, yeah, they I like their jungles. I mm-hmm. have to be said, I love that film. It's a great film. it almost disturbing to say, I would say modern classic.
0: Very much modern cloud. I would, I would completely agree with you with yes. there, Wayne. But look, look, you've summarised it, and I would say you've uh, pontificated very well, Wayne. Well, thank you very much. But you know, dear listeners, <laughs> in our censor episode, very early on in our career, episode, and I'm say- e- I, and I'm, episode four, I believe, and I'm saying career way there, Wayne, <laughs> and I'm sticking to that guns. But in our censor episode, di- the film censor, directed by Prano Bailey Bond. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that's almost a British classic, a modern classic at the moment.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. yes, just yes, Love that film very much. Lot of fun talking about that one.
0: Right. So in that episode, we had a segment explaining the video nasty controversy. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Mm-hmm. We also made a YouTube clip, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> clip clipped from that episode. So if you want a more in-depth analysis of the whole video nasty controversy, you can YouTube us at In Film We Trust podcast explaining the Video Nasty controversy.
1: Yes, and also, again, let's just put a little plug in for Sensor. Fantastic film. If you are at all interested in the Video Nasties, of course, listen to our episodes this month. Also, go and watch Sensor. Not only is it a great story in itself, but it does highlight the Video Nasty controversy very well, I think.
0: So, Wayne, where do you think The Witch Who Came From the Sea fits in with this? Because it's a 1976 release. Yes, it is. It's dealing with very controversial topics. Mm. Very, very controversial topics topics, because this was directed by Mark Kimber? I think so, yeah. We're going going with Kimber, aren't we? We'll we'll stick with that. At least we're wrong consistently, yes. And, okay, I've got a quote from Kimber, which this will explain it when we get further into the film, but Kimber said, nobody back then, meaning the 70s, ever dealt with drama. These subjects never belonged in movies because then movies were purely, you know, thought of as entertainment. Right. Is this entertaining? Is it a topical film? What are we going for, Wayne? Tell me.
1: I'll be honest, entertainment is not the first word that comes to mind when I think of this film. But like we said before, you were saying a lot of these movies, because of the controversy, they were overlooked and not regarded as being as good as they were. But I think this film is a lot more in depth. It's a lot more interesting. There's a lot more facets to it. I don't think you can just call this a simple exploitation film. I think there's a lot more going on under the surface in this film.
0: I was a big fan of this film, Wayne. Yeah, I really liked it. This was a first time watch. Obviously, you watch it two times. You know, you kind of divulge yourself in the the material to, you know, talk about something. Mm -hmm. For me, it held up the second time. What about you? What, did it held up the second time? It
1: did, yes. It's not just that it held up. It's the fact that when you watch it back second time, you're looking for different details and you notice more things as you go along the second time. Like when I was making notes, yeah, the second time, adding little bits here and there right. and noting my notes.
0: So Matt Kimber, Kimber, whatever we're going <laughs> to say, okay, he's this director from the 70s, you know, bred from the 70s. He's, he was specialised in sex exploitation films, exploitation films. And you know, I quite like a Black Exploitation film, but yeah. his films I'd never actually heard of. I'll, I'll label two Wayne. Have you heard of these either? The Black Six and Lady Coco. I've heard of Lady Coco, yes. Is that insensitive, Wayne?
1: <laughs> Could be about the hot drink. I don't know, like when I think of Black Exploitation, I think of Dolomite films. They're the first ones that come to mind. Wayne?
0: Yes. Shaft.
1: Yes. Oh and Shaft as well, of course.
0: Sweet Sweet Back's badass song?
1: <laughs> that is a good name, Melvin Van Peebles. Mario Van, P- Mario Van Peebles. That's the son. That's the oh, that's actually his son. That's the son. For, he, he
0: done uh, New Jack City
1: in the nineties. New Jack City. M- I've no, Melvin I know Van
0: one. Peebles done Sweet
1: Sweetbox. Have you never seen
0: Sweet? Sweet I need
1: Bucks? to watch more of these films. I think. Come on, Wayne. <laughs> Should we have Black Month Month? <laughs>
0: Don't tempt me, Wayne. <laughs> v- I'm considering that, as yeah. you say
1: that. Everybody I'm let us know, do you it? think that's going to be a good idea? Also, here's an interesting thing on uh, um directography. Uh, he did the 1982 film Butterfly, the Pia Zadora film. Was that
0: very controversial? It was controversial. Why was it controversial?
1: Well, backstage controversy is the fact that uh, Pia Zadora, I think, was actually married to the producer at the time, right. who allegedly wined and dined the Golden Globe uh, some of the Golden yes. Globe organisers. Yes. So Pia Adora went on to win, I think, a Razzie for Worst Actress, but also a Golden Globe for Best New Star. Really? And everyone immediately said, yeah, there's foul play here. Was
0: Butterfly not, you know... Was that not nominated for a lot of Razzies? Three, I think. Was uh, it three? I
1: think it was uh, actress, picture, and director. We'll need to cover like a film. Mm. What has actually been,
0: you know, his one Razzie. Mm. I don't think we've done that yeah. yet.
1: Yeah, got a great hero of ours in it, Stacy Keach. Stacy Keach, is Stacy Keach, Road it? game Stacy Keach. Road Games, Stacy Keach. Yes, Pat Quid, Q U I D. Yes,
0: right. So Matt Kimber, one of his, he, he, here's a fact that men may like Wayne. Some women may like as well. Do you know who he was married to? Wayne Jane Mansfield. Yes, from 1964 to 1966.
1: Yeah, he was actually her last husband. Yes, that's a handful. <laughs> in, in many ways, it is. Yeah. Also, and here's something that blew my mind. Uh, He was actually the co-creator and director of GLOW, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, the professional wrestling promotion.
0: Yeah, from the 80s. Not the Netflix show.
1: No, 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 not the Netflix show. The
0: the Netflix show is based on the 80s, you know, women's wrestling TV program, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Which did you know in the Netflix show? Mark Mm -hmm. Barron's character, Sam Sylvia is based on Matt Kimber. Oh, he's actually based on him. Yep, uh, but uh, have you, you've not saw Glow, have you? No, you said it was really good. Glow is really good. But, you know, Sam Sylvia, Mark Marin in the Netflix show Glow, his character is more of a horror exploitation, you know, director. Okay. I would say the real Matt Kimber is, you know, he's hmm. he, he's delving into exploitation and sex exploitation a little more than horror, yeah. isn't
1: he? Yeah, well, with Matt Kimber, actually... This film, well, specifically to do with its writer, uh, Robert Tom, this film almost came out of necessity because, do you know, Tom was actually seriously ill in hospital when this screenplay was ri- being written.
0: He was writing it with an IV drip in his arm.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting. I think, in a sense, that plays into the feel of the movie because a lot of the film is the kind of blending of reality and fiction, not being quite sure if you're in one or the other. It's almost like... Are you saying was Robert his-
0: was on too many, too much morphine?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think in a sense, yeah. That, do, you see, do you see what I mean? Even the feel of the movie that like when Travolta was researching uh, Pulp Fiction and he was researching the part of a heroin yeah. addict, he, was said, he said it's what you need to do is get drunk on tequila and like lie under the water in a hot tub. And it's almost got that feeling kind of that kind of being underwater. Even water plays a, an important part in this film.
0: That's a long way to go for Travolta. It is, I suppose, He could yeah. have tried a bit of heroin. Yeah. No, no, no he,
1: didn't go, he didn't go that method. No, he didn't go that method. No, but because uh, he was married to uh, he was married to Millie Perkins at Millie so time. So
0: Millie Perkins, she plays Molly, who is the protagonist of this film. Mm-hmm. So, look, a lot of this film, as you said, was made out of necessity. Yeah. And why was it so controversial for the filmmakers themselves? Well, Robert Tom, as you explained, was married to Millie Perkins, so, Robert Tom there is lying in hospital. Millie Perkins is his wife. She's the central character to this film. Well... They plugged from both their lives because yeah. Millie Perkins' real life dad was a sea he captain. Was a sea captain, yes. And Millie Perkins, the actress, her, you know, she was really concerned. And especially, look, her sister was extremely concerned. She says, Why are you going to sully the name of our dad? If people know this is, you know, brought up from your real life experience or, mm-hmm. you know, a fictionalized version of your own
1: life, people are going to think your dad is a fucking, you know, weirdo. Do you think people were more inclined to believe that back then? Because especially if if it's a film you hated, you're going to look at any excuse to chuck mud at it.
0: What do you think? Would you be concerned if somebody made a film like that on
1: your dad and, you know, they twisted the twisted the story there? Yeah, I'd be furious. It's a, it's a weird way to build a story. It is very strange, but I guess maybe because of the internet being more mainstream, it's easier to find this information. But back then, maybe a lot of people didn't realise that the dad was a sea captain and he was partially based on... Uh, Millie Perkins actual father
0: I don't think it ever stated what was Robert Tom's you know I couldn't find his own his own life experience all I found was it
1: combined the life experience but I couldn't find anything from no, his no I never side. could either no I I never you know before this I didn't even know who Robert Tom was no I mean do you think it could have been uh, uh, drug misuse or alcoholism maybe I could be part of it yeah bloody yeah. sailors went <laughs> exactly yeah but like you say about millie perkins back then she became a big star i think she was it was the anf, uh, the diary, diary of Anne frank yeah that shot to fame that was 59 i think 59, 59 yeah. so it's a long time it's, it's it's you know 15 or so years yeah. but when you think of the studio system back then studios had a lot more control over their performers and she turned down what she considered a b movie and the studio dropped her and she did this film a year later and she was embarrassed by it. She says, I didn't want anyone to know I did a softcore movie. That's what I called it then. Well, she had real problems with the nudity in this film. Yes, she did. Because yeah. there is there quite, a, there's a little bit of nudity. It's quite prevalent, yes. It, it's not explicit,
0: explicit in the sense. It's it, it's not, you know, um, nymphomaniac, is it? It's no. not large fun, free or anything. <laughs> no, yet. right enough, yes. But, but it's, you it's know, for the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What do you think? Well, I don't think... Again, we talked about you'll get tentpole movies that have more violence. I think you get modern mainstream releases that will have more sex and nudity as well.
0: What does it say about us? Like, the most we know of Millie Perkins is The witch who Came From the Sea.
1: Mm. Well, it's strange that... Imagine that being defined by a movie that you really didn't like making. Because I don't think she had the best of time making it. She certainly didn't enjoy the film afterwards. But Kimber seemed to have nothing but praise for her. He even called her a real actress, which was rare, for especially for exploitation films.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm not going to disagree because I think this film is a really strong film. So do I. I,
1: I. I've never saw The Diary of Anne Frank, have you? No, I haven't seen it, no. This is maybe better. It could be. Who knows? But I mean, again, just, just going off the direction, um, yeah, I think Millie Perkins did a great job. Again, it's someone we'll get into. In fact... It didn't do well with critics. It didn't do well at the box office. Don't have exact numbers, but Kimber actually tried to boost box office numbers with a misle- misleading poster, which featured... It was, yes. ...featured, quote, a buxom warrior witch straddling a craggy rock, a scythe in one hand, and a bloody severed head in the other. So the juxtaposition <laughs> there is
0: it may have brought extra people to the cinema, mm. but it almost, it
1: you know, it detracted from the seriousness of the critical success. It completely miss it. Right. That's the kind of thing you'd expect on a typical video nasty poster like you know, people you know blood everywhere severed heads knives in fact
0: or a Conan a barbarian or
1: something exactly or like when we did Maniac that that poster was controversial was he just holding a, a decapitated then? head Just a, deca- a decapitated head exactly so it's fucking like he Joe Spinell exactly <laughs> trying to sell it on this exploitation this gore when at its heart this movie is a psychological study. It's a
0: psychological drama, Wayne, mm. with horror elements. Mm. You could almost say, would you almost say, Wayne, this mm. is 76, it's a proto-slasher. Mm. We,
1: could, could you make the argument there? You could, yes. I think could, because 76, we're talking like before Halloween. When was Black Christmas? Was, was that 74? That was round about the same time. Yeah, so it's yeah. roughly the same time. So we're talking early slasher films. Yeah, but like you say, that quote before, people didn't want to see this, movies are entertainment. Movies are escapism. Which yeah. is, I think, is an important theme in this film. It, as well. It's
0: funny you say that. Hasn't cinema changed so much? Yeah, there's a sense that okay, well, especially when if you compare the fifties to the you know the new Hollywood period, hmm. where you know in the fifties or early sixties you had you know. You know, you had the, the Hills Are Alive Again, Wayne. <laughs> you had those lyrical songs. And then you had Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. Th- and you had Five Easy Pieces. You had this movement. And, you know, we actually mentioned, you know, quite recently in the post, you know, John luc Godard died. Yeah. And they, they brought this certain... They wanted to bring this this tactile, you know, this realism to cinema. This individuality this as individuality well. This individuality. And it... Throughout the 70s, you know, the, the 60s, they always said it was swinging for the rich. Hmm. And in the 70s is when it, it was swinging for everybody. Yes. So you get this sense that, okay, you know, the morale is loosening in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We're going to explore the depths of trouble. We're going to explore the depths of human psychology. And this film does it in spades way.
1: It was like a shift from entertaining the masses to telling the truth. Right. Telling these real life dark stories and i think that's what it probably was that upset people that people didn't want to see this kind of thing on screen oh think of the children kind of situation wayne <laughs> you know when we
0: said we had covered the video nasty in the censor yeah are you thinking of that idiot politician who said you don't have to just you know beware of your children you mm-hmm. have to
1: watch the dog doesn't get possessed by this no, that's right, and that's the kind of thing I'd expect someone back then to say. Because again, we talked about them being scapegoats. There were politicians who would bring up video nasties in their campaign speeches. You know, rally out. You know, boycott this movie. Don't go and see this movie. Which, of course, is just going to drive the viewing figures. Up. It's very enticing, Wayne, isn't it? <laughs>
0: you, you you almost want to see the forbidden. Mm-hmm. You want to get in some grungy cinema, don't you? You're
1: more likely to go and see it. It's like if a, if your parents tell you not to listen to a certain band, that creates intrigue. I wonder if Taxi
0: Driver was looked at as grungy back in the day. It's a very grungy film, it? Does isn't it does have a very grungy feel. Yeah. But like
1: you say, that individuality telling the truth, it's not the kind of film you put on, oh, let's get some popcorn and sit down. No, it's the kind of film that explores underbellies. The kind of individuals in society, again, cast offs, outcasts, well, like, well, taxi, easy rider?
0: well taxi driver, easy rider. At their heart they're psychological studies, aren't they? Of mm-hmm. a particular person or subgroup of people. And mm-hmm. taxi driver is very individual and in Wayne, in the witch who came from the sea, is working on that very same. Level.
1: Absolutely, because psychological studies don't all look the same. Like the way this examines the psychology is different to how Scorsese examined Travis Bickle's psychology, for example. But yeah, they're done in very, very individual ways. And I think Sim- uh, Simber had a very particular way of doing it in this film. Because this film is, would you say it's kind of odd in the way it's presented?
0: Very odd way. And that I think before this podcast, when we were, you know, messaging each other after we'd seen the film, I think that was a word we both used is odd. Offbeat, offbeat, odd, peculiar—you know, any adjective or synonym along those words you want to mm. use. Because, you know, y- you in private life, Wayne, <laughs>
1: you usually mock me when I use the <laughs> word
0: singular. <laughs> Have you ever saw a film <laughs> like this before?
1: No, absolutely
0: not. So, am I right by saying this is, could be a singular film? Is, right. It is Damn a singular right. film.
1: It is a very singular film. It's got a very, yeah, very singular vision to it.
0: So you're gonna mock me again?
1: Definitely not. No, fuck you. Lovely, I, I miss your mocks now. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do that when we. Yeah. Pr- we'll we'll do that in private messaging. But let's. How about we outline the story a little bit? The story follows uh, a lady called uh, Molly. This is Millie Perkins. Yep. She's a waitress in a bar, and she has. Very early on, we see she has quite deep psychological issues. Very deep, yes. Very deep. And can we just take a moment to say how good Millie Perkins' performance in this film is? I thought it was outstanding. Wouldn't she's really
0: think? good in this way. She is it, It's... You know, it's of its time in a sense because it's a little dramatic. Mm -hmm. But there's also it's working on two levels. You get you get the you know the exterior, which Mm. can be a little dramatic, over the top. But there's very subtle you know little
1: experimentation. She's also working with, isn't there? She plays it with a kind of interesting duality because she has there's of course her soft side which she presents to most of the people in the film. But then there's also, again, that kind of dark underside, the troubled side, which is the side that's the kind of... the movie's most interested in examining. Well, uh, I would say,
0: Wayne, a big theme of this film is the division between fantasy and reality. Absolutely. And she has these two nephews. She's very doting, she's very caring. Mm -hmm. Would you almost say the children represent, you know, that point in life before a man becomes twisted by
1: adulthood would you say that the last like the, the last breath of innocence. innocence yeah yeah the last thing it seems also the boys tad and tripoli Yep, uh, they that's, seemed... that's two names right <laughs> it's kind of strange yeah do you think would you say they're almost the two people who she loves like most unequivocally there doesn't seem to be any point where there's crosswords between them or anything it's like her love for them is the most easiest to to see on display
0: definitely that's very evident but why this is what we need to examine why is it the only kind of you know functioning relationship is with these two people and this is what i said a second ago i think it's because they represent a certain innocence to life i think so. they're not twisted by adulthood yet no. they've never made the mistakes so to speak molly's a very repressed woman mm-hmm. she's repressing memories she's she can't deal with certain things so she's cast them aside so she's Concocted this version of her life that isn't necessarily reality. Absolutely.
1: You say fantasy and reality delusion as well Yeah, she's created this very strong delusion that stage where you've kind of lied to yourself for so long You now kind of believe it because the main psychological quandary she has is with her her father Like we said he's a sea captain and she has a sister called Kathy now when they're talking to each other They have completely opposite ideas of what the father was like because Molly idolises her father she was a great man he was a great sailor she just gushes about him all the time but kathy in one scene dismisses him basically as just a drunken bum that's all she has to say about
0: it right well even her death is disputed because molly believes the father you know he was lost at sea she has yeah. this heroic story Yeah, that's almost
1: like a more romanticized way of putting it
0: right well her whole life is romanticized where kathy's like look he died a drunk he's buried somewhere because mm-hmm. kathy is kind of here's the duality of this film wayne mm-hmm. Kathy is played with this high-pitched naivety, right? Mm -hmm. Yet Molly is the kind of on the surface the more realist the more contemporary kathy feels like a woman out of time out of touch yeah yet kathy knows the past she realizes the quandary they're in yet Mm -hmm. molly is the one no matter what her present circumstances is is she's very
1: much in hiding isn't she yeah it's like she's hiding behind this this delusion facade yeah exactly she says at one point she says television makes people so much kinder doesn't it wait oh wait (laughs) that's not a line a lot of folk would actually Say.
0: A lot of the films we cover, we've covered Body Double, films of that ilk, mm-hmm. and they're very shown in the male gaze, aren't they? Yes. But this film is very, very, very much in the female gaze. Yes, complete opposite. Right, because the opening scene when she's with her nephews, they're you know they're jet, they're, they're gesturing, they're being friendly on the beach, they're doing little races. Mm-hmm. But there's also these shots where she's gazing at male bodybuilders on the beach, on the p- pull-up bars, etc. And it's, it's very sexualized. Yes. But it also turns very deadly. Mm-hmm. So we've got this duality. It's like, okay, why is Molly, you know, fixating on the flesh and death? Mm-hmm. Because her images, her gazes, her sexualized, you know, thoughts very much and very fastly turn to death. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the psychology, Wayne, of this film.
1: Because sex and death are very much related in this film it's painful it's like it's not like accident it's like actual torture deaths like them being strung up having body parts cut off because her main fixation throughout this film in terms of fictional characters seems to be footballers when i say fictional i mean her kind of idealized version of them because as we say she's got this idealized version of her especially her father and just the people on tv she calls them brave heroes
0: uh, yeah i don't think it's footballers when i think it's The images you see on TV, because they represent, in a sense, perfection, don't they? They're unsullied by reality. So the American footballers are, you know, they're the gallant heroes Mm -hmm. who win these games because they're not just any American football players. They're the top American football players. And she has this also has this relationship with, is it Alexander McPeak?
1: McPeak, yes.
0: McPeak, who's in the advertisement for a shaver. Yes. And he's shaving. He's beside this very beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And everything is garland.
1: Everything is perf- perfect. Everybody's handsome on TV, mm-hmm. aren't they? Everyone's ha- ha- everyone. Everyone's handsome. Everyone's happy. It's all a good time. Do you think it's almost a sense where her reality has been so crushing, so disappointing that she's almost forced herself into this fantasy world because that's where she can... Attain some semblance of happiness. Well,
0: let, well, let's get to the juxtap of this emotion, Wayne. Right, because early on, her sister Kathy, she says, and they're, they're, you know, they're having a conversation about her father, the deceased father, and Kathy says to Molly, "Look, he was an evil bastard, and no one knows it more than you." Mm -hmm. that's what she says to molly so okay what does that mean we get in this film very few flashbacks but they're very pertinent to the story Mm -hmm. we're building this idea okay he's a sea captain Mm -hmm. he's this strappingly strong man but within those confinements is a very warped individual
1: he's a horrible man essentially it's like again this kind of strapping sailor, but again the juxtaposition between this being this kind of handsome, heroic sailor and being this kind of pathetic, drunken nobody. Like I say, Cathy calls him a drunken bum. And how can these two sisters have such vastly opposing ideas of the same person who they knew closely?
0: Do you know what I've noticed, Wayne? Mm-hmm. We both love the
1: word juxtaposition. We do.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is good. But but how interesting are psychological juxtapositions?
0: Well, it, it gets to it gets to this theme, okay? Two people experience a similar circumstance. Why does Cathy not see her father in the same way Molly does, mm-hmm. well, maybe Kathy wasn't abused. Because let's let, let, let's break this down, right? Molly, in this story, is a sexually abused young girl yes. when she was a young girl, wasn't she? Yes,
1: by the father, so, yes.
0: Right. So what happens is the father always says to her, let's sail away to sea. Mm. And that is, in his eyes, he's saying, you know, It's a sexualized comment, isn't it? Yes. It means it's time essentially to be raped, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well, what I caught on very early on is I thought, why do these two people have such opposite views? It's not like one of them is ambivalent. Right. One of them is full of praise. One of them is full of venom. And what I got, the idea was one of them was mistreated and now... She's lying to herself.
0: Well, that that's what I was saying. She's Wayne. in denial. Well, Kathy sees it as it was because she wasn't the one abused. Mm. So she doesn't have to build up this false facade. Yeah. Whereas Molly, to get through your day-to-day life, mm-hmm. she has to build up this fantasy, this story, this narrative in her head mm-hmm. to make her cope with her everyday life.
1: Yeah, like I say, it's a it's a coping mechanism. Right. She went through this horrifically traumatic childhood. Like you say, we see flashbacks, they're not Too graphic. They're not overextended, but it's like enough to get the gist of what's going on, and they're pretty shocking as well.
0: And as you said, these footballers, these people on TV, because one of the first, you know, these breaks from reality or the supposed breaks from reality Mm -hmm. is when she meets these two football players she saw on TV. She meets them in a hotel room. It looks but, and there's two of them, and you know it's very sexualized. Mm -hmm. One of the footballers calls her a little girl, and the other calls her papa.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So, you know, these are terms you don't know if they're divulging from reality or if this is the fantasy. Is she remembering what her father would call her Mm -hmm.
1: or is these footballers calling her it for real? Well, for me, that was one of the most... The, what was one of the smartest thematic things about this film is it kind of has the unreliable narrator yes. idea about it because, again, we kind of switch in and out of reality. A lot of the time it looks like those two lines are blurring. You can never be sure, but because we follow Molly, because we're seeing it from her point of view, the first time I watched this film, the scene with the footballers, yeah. I thought that was a dream sequence because it's kind of presented like it because the cinematography looks different. It even sounds different. There's this kind of weird echo, like this kind of echoey effect playing on. Because I think the footballers, they're either stoned or they're drunk. I think they're probably actually both.
0: Well, do you know who one of the associate directors or photographer for this film was? Oh, who was it? Dean Cundy. Uh, Dean heard... Cundy, two years later, would photograph Halloween. Oh, wow. And he, look. Mark Kimber was this, you know, he's a very charismatic guy who, and he managed to coax De- Dean Cundy into this film, as I said, two years before Halloween. And Dean Cundy, you know, he brought these anamorphic lenses and an anamorphic lens, they'll condense and stretch the image. It will also make it less sharp. And this get, give them the ability to film long shots, tracking shots, panning shots, which means for this, you know, this cheap exploitation film, fewer camera setups, you know, which would help the lower budget, Mm-hmm. And there's also scenes in this film where color negatives used, yeah. where, you know, for certain dreamlike sequences, it, it creates this atmosphere of it's you know it's off killer. It's yeah. almost like the
1: film itself has sea legs. Yeah, exactly. It's some scenes are kind of hazy almost to the point of being out of focus but again when you're in a dream sequence or a fantasy sequence it works because everything you're not quite seeing it 100 percent as it is but
0: here's the thing Wayne: what is a dream sequence what is the reality and that's what this uh, film is posing are we in molly's story or are we in the you know the reality
1: of the story that's exactly because you don't know where her reality uh, ends and where her her fiction begins. Because like you say, she's a person who very much does live in a fantasy world. Again, probably as a coping mechanism, probably to... Escape the reality that she's been denying all of her life.
0: But you know how we before we said you know this could almost be a proto slasher. Mm-hmm. Well, you know those two, f- two footballers she meets. Mm-hmm. She's in the hotel room. Well, she ties them up. It's very kinky way. Mm-hmm. It's like it's almost like a sex game that v- very soon turns. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it, nefarious?
1: Yeah, but like I say, she's I said earlier, she's kind of talking to them in kind of almost like a nurturing because she's not threatening. She's been kind of nice to them, almost kind of mummying them as she basically yeah, ties both of them. She ties them together and she ties them to the bed as well.
0: But she gets a straight razor out. This is her motif, isn't it? Mm. This is her M O. Mm. She gets a straight razor. Do you know how she kills them, Wayne? Mm. Before she kills them, she cuts off their genitals,
1: mm-hmm. castration. And that's not just a cruelty thing. That's again a very important thing, the kind of the emasculation. Of men in the film do you
0: think she's almost taken her anger out on her father yeah i know she's repressed this she doesn't believe her father abused her but mm-hmm. in a sense deep down psychologically deep down in her subconscious she knows so mm-hmm. and you know it's coming out it, it's represented in this way to her you know her relationship with men exactly
1: because she is so we'll say she's so furious at her father but she won't allow herself to really outwardly express it especially like when she's talking to her sister. So, look, the dad's dead. He's missing in action. He's lost at sea, whatever. She can't take her rage out on him now. So basically, yes, taking out on men. Again, castrating, emasculating them. So I think it's symbolic of her, again, her hatred of her father. Would you
0: say now she hates all men? This Here's the important part. And here's what I was uh, saying before. You know how she's, you know, she's extremely close with her two nephews, yes. Todd and Tripoli do you think she's as close with them because they represent childhood they're not not men they're boys they're not
1: men so you're saying if they were men maybe she would have more of a resentment towards them she'd be like like, oh you men are just nothing but filthy pigs kind of thing but because they're children they're still what like she can almost sculpt them in a certain image she can protect them keep them in this fantasy world do you agree or what do you think about that yeah I think it would because even what's strange is her relationship with some people like this McPeak guy for example she seems to idolise these people but is that just because because he did the razor adverts and he's this handsome you know strapping man who she has fantasies about
0: yeah, it, it, well, it plays into that. It's TV. TV was her escape while she was being molested, wasn't it? Yes. So everybody on TV is, is in a sense, her happy place. Mm-hmm. So if she wants to, you know, escape reality, which it, this film is all about escaping reality mm-hmm. as up to a certain point. So all these football players, all these advertisement people, the actors, they're escapism. Mm-hmm. They're idealized. -hmm. And that's what the film is about, and that and that's why it's all the people she kills is football players. Mm -hmm. You know, the under guy, etc.
1: Yeah, it's very important that you use the word escapism. Yeah, because I think there's a one one scene where she's it's one of the flashbacks with her father, and she's looking off to the side. It's almost like she's looking off into the distance, looking for a place to escape to. And uh, again, we're saying about Millie Perkins' performance. What do you think? Do you think she was like? How good was the performance in this film, you think? I thought she
0: was really strong. She was, She's really strong because she's playing with a nuance here. Mm -hmm. There's a subtlety to the way she acts. Yes. Is it the best performance ever? No, of course not. We're we're working within a certain, you know, parameters here. This is a certain genre picture.
1: But she plays you agree she plays a haunted character, she's a traumatised character, and there's a lot of power and gravitas to performance. April Wolf, a film critic, uh, she said that Perkins plays the role as highbrow Greek tragedy rather than lurid exploitation. This doesn't feel like your kind of typical video-nasty heroine.
0: But who says that, Wayne? Mm-hmm. Who, who's letting you poison the well and say, look, a video-nasty is a certain thing? Mm-hmm. All these films that encompass the video-nasty you know, tag... Mm-hmm. They're completely varied. Mm-hmm. They're not one thing. Like Cannibal Holocaust, we mentioned before. Very intelligent film. Yes. Salacious, explicit, you know, sometimes over the top, but very pertinent to a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. So. And, and that's you could almost call *Cannibal Holocaust* the most notorious video nasty yeah. In terms of popularity, mm-hmm. in terms of notoriety, mm-hmm. yet it's very pertinent. It's very mm-hmm. important. It's yes. very thematically, mm-hmm. you know, of its time, and actually still to
1: still yeah. to this day. Yeah, and with its characters, its characters are individuals, not stereotypes. Because when you think of kind of horror movie heroines, you think of covered in blood and screaming and running. But with yeah, with Molly, a lot of it is kind of downplayed it's a lot of done through her behavior through her movements through her words through her addictions as well because she drinks a lot takes a lot of pills again she's very haunted character but i just really like the way that she's played and how she renders men essentially helpless tied to the bed and then removing the testicles emasculating them it's taking this this kind of poetic revenge so
0: Look, we've mentioned Molly now. We've kind of set up her story. Who's the other pertinent? There's Car, Kathy, mm-hmm. her sister. She has somewhat of an importance. Would you say she's how how important? Would you say she's just there
1: to counter Molly's ideas? In a sense, she's kind of the counterpoint to Molly. Yes, obviously, she is the fu- uh, she is the mother of uh, Tad and Tripoli. But I think she kind of resents Molly in a way because do they not seem a lot closer to Molly than they are to? To Kathy.
0: But that's because she's the playful aunt, isn't it? She she's not the mother. She's not. She's in, in a sense she's not mothering them. Mm-hmm. She she's the fun auntie, isn't she? The see, one who f- takes you to the beach. She's not there to discipline.
1: No, she's the crazy auntie. Like, oh, you're going to go over and see your crazy auntie. Right? No, she's a bad influence. Oh, but she gives us things that you don't give us, kind of thing. And for that reason, I think that's why Tad and Tripoli are actually more inclined to believe Molly, almost because she'll tell them kind of what she wants to hear, which in a sense is just like her. She only believes what she wants to believe. It's like selective hearing, isn't it? Also, you mentioned the innocents before, because they're still at that age where they just want to have fun. They want to enjoy themselves. So they're going to avoid the disciplinarian and they're going to go for the relative who's actually fun to be around.
0: Look, do they play a huge narrative part in this story, Tad and Tripoli? Not especially, but they're thematically there. It it enriches Molly's life, doesn't it? Mm. It enriches the story in the sense that it gives a context to her behaviour.
1: It's about the only part of her actual reality that she seems to find any joy in because she doesn't seem very close with Kathy. She doesn't seem to get on well with that many people. Like, for example... The, she works at a bar, and it's a nautical-themed bar. What's well,
0: nautical? Because look, which which you came from the sea? Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so we're by the sea, Wayne. Yeah, we're we're on point here, mm-hmm. and I think was it the boat house is the name of the bar. I think what it's called. Yes, and you know we've got Long John there.
1: Mm-hmm. The the barman and the owner. I'm the guessing, barman yeah.
0: and the owner of the. Boathouse, yes, and he has this relationship. And he look, he's actually quite a realistic character. He's he's a grounded character. He has a sexual relationship with Molly, yes. but he himself says, and I think it's to you know a bar regular. I think her name's Doris, is it? I think so. Yes. And he look, he divulges in her. Look, I know she's going to stray, meaning Molly. Mm-hmm. She has other men in her life, mm-hmm. but he's too old now. Essentially, yeah. he's going to let her, you know. Wander off into her own, mm-hmm. you know, her her own directions. By the end of the day, she comes back to him.
1: Yeah, we'll say it's something of a relationship of convenience.
0: But here's the thing. Here's the twisted thing. In a sense, Wayne mm-hmm. does Long John, who who who's you know he, he's a relatable guy. He's a he, you would, you'd almost say he's a good guy in this film. He's
1: kind of an earthy character, right?
0: But here's the here's the twisted thing, Wayne. Does him he because he wears you know the sailor cap. He's works at this boathouse. Mm-hmm. He's called Long John. <laughs> Does he represent Wayne? In a sense,
1: is she looking for her father in him? I suppose so, because it doesn't seem like there's much love between them, like much... I would say... No, I would say there is a compassion
0: between you them. You think so? I think so, because it's his bed she goes to. Yes. It's his shoulder she would cry on. Mm-hmm. She is the the waitress at that bar, mm-hmm. but it's more than just... a. Plutonic, it's more than just a tit-for-tat relationship. I think there's actually emotion mm-hmm. in that relationship.
1: But do you think there's any kind of bitterness? Because like you say, if he's some kind of representation of her father, because there are moments where she'll be annoyed at him, they'll have arguments, and she might be a little bit bitter towards him. Do you think that could be just little projections of like her, right, inner, but you've her got innermost to, feelings?
0: But you've got to remember for most of this story, she's not bitter towards her father on the exterior because mm. she sees her father
1: as this gallant sailor. Yeah, that's what I mean, those, those moments that just kind of sneak out right. every now and then. Do you think she's replacing her father with long John. In a sense, yeah, because well look, he's called well things long, John. He works in a sailor bar, he dresses up in you know he dresses yeah. in the garb. So yeah, it's like he's almost this kind of substitute.
0: But you know that that Doris we mentioned, there's actually quite an interesting story because Doris, yeah. you know, she would you say she's a borderline alcoholic? She's like the person in the bar who's always in the bar.
1: Yeah, she's always there.
0: Right. Well, she's played by this actress called Peggy Fury, mm-hmm. right? And she was actually coaxed out of retirement to play this role. Hmm. And she actually was a teacher and art director at the Actors Studio who would instruct actors such as Michelle Pfeiffer, Angelica Houston, and Sean Penn. So even in this exploitation genre, if you want to call Hmm. it that, we're dealing with quite a pedigree here. Like Peggy Hmm. Fury, she's worked with, you know, some of the top names in the business. She's worked at the Actors Studio, which is like the top... It's essentially the top acting class you can go to.
1: Yeah. So we're talking exploitation film, but so much has been put into it. That's why we really appreciate this film. It felt like real, honest-to-God effort was put into this. It wasn't just some kind of cheap cash-in. It felt like there were a lot of great elements at play here.
0: So, Wayne, right, we keep a hint in that. We keep... keep Alluding to this abuse between, you know, father and daughter. How is this displayed into the film? It's flashbacks, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, Cathy said he was a drunk, he was a lowlife. He's all these expletives, okay? Mm-hmm. But why does the audience, apart from Kathy's sentiments, how are we told how this you know the past
1: unfolded? Well, basically when she was younger, because as we see in these flashbacks, there's one which was I thought was especially disturbing where she opens a cupboard and the father's just, like, crouched in there naked, like he was almost waiting for her.
0: Yeah, that, w- that was quite haunting, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think this is backed up by the music, because I noticed the music played in those scenes, it's this really grating music. It's like when you put sounds in like that to make us dislike a character more, because whenever we have these flashback scenes, they have this grating music in. It kind of adds to our animosity towards
0: it's them. It's a strange soundtrack, isn't it? Did you find the score was very... It was idiosyncratic. It was very, very, would you all say, it's like skirting on the lines between horror and sea shanty.
1: Yeah. Did you notice the, you know, the, we spoke about this actually in the reanimator episode, the kind of psycho music sting of the dun, dun, dun one. There's actually excerpts of that in this film. The dun, dun, dun. Yes. yes. Again, in a kind of weird, distorted way, because I think a lot of the musical distortion is very deliberate to set the scene in a lot of places. Like you say, the scene with the footballers, there's scenes where it almost sounds like Molly is underwater. Well, here, here's what's kind of disturbing. You know how there's this theme of
0: television. Yes. You messaged me when we were watching this film and you said it almost feels, in a sense, like a soap opera. Yes. Do you think it's playing with those conventions purposefully because, you know, everybody knows a soap opera. They're in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's using those tropes in a sense to subvert our ideas and you know blacking
1: the image of a soap sort of yeah because back then you definitely wouldn't have seen themes like this on uh, on soap operas maybe you would now in fact uh, parts i thought this seems like a kind of dark episode of eastenders for example when dealing with child abuse but even some of the acting and the writing like sometimes when Kathy especially character Kathy when she delivers her lines she's almost doing it in a kind of awkward stilted way like she's doing it as if she doesn't want to forget what she has to say it's done in a kind of an odd way and I think again that adds to this bizarre reality fantasy blending like almost like Kathy is a character in a story in Molly's mind well that's
0: what we were saying before wait this is the female gaze and specifically not just is it the female gaze it's molly's gaze isn't it mm-hmm. this is a story through molly because we're also introduced to another weird character way <laughs> and he is fucking weird billy bat
1: yeah the tattooist
0: no billy bats no. billy bat is the actor oh the actor. and he's almost got this he's a, he's almost this sleazy b-movie actor isn't he yes and she goes to his house because she meets him in the bar and there's this house party at Billy Batts's yeah. where all them, you know, they will corral, they'll they'll mm. go visit, and he's kind of this sleazy guy who has a reputation of being quite the
1: aggressive. Yeah, oh, I, I've noted him now as the cowboy, because because he was because he was a, a stetson, doesn't he? He was the cowboy hat. He's a strange guy, Wayne. Right? Yeah, in fact, he asks Long John at the bar at one point, "Do you know any virgins?" And what was uh, what was his reply? I can't remember what did Long John say to that. I have no idea. I thought you would know. I, th- <laughs> I thought I thought, me- I thought you were going on the point I there th- I right? thought maybe he was going to outweird Long John. Yeah, but he's is he portrayed as someone who's kind of in power like you say. He's quite sleazy. He's quite aggressive.
0: Well, this is look a lot of the characters we see, like with the footballers, we were saying the idealized. Well, here we've get we're getting a more in depth perspective of the idealized because here's Billy Bat. He's the movie star. He's mm. the television star. But we see him as a very, you know, he's almost damaged himself. He's very sleazy. He's very off putting, isn't he? Yeah. He he. It's almost you know disillusioning of Molly's opinion of these kind of people she would see on TV Mm. and it's also telling the audience look here's a movie star he's a piece of shit yeah which look in the Me Too movement way, (laughs) we're all accustomed to hearing these piece of shit stories about these
1: celebrities yeah but this is not on Molly's mind because in Molly's mind these people who she sees on TV who she sees in films and in commercials they're beautiful they're perfect but yeah then this guy comes along almost kind of shakes up her idea of what's she would see on tv and it's good you bring that up because like you say they're at a party and they both come uh, across a painting the birth of venus which is
0: important because you were on about greek mythology explain what why is that pertinent
1: well it's a botticelli painting and it shows uh, basically the goddess the greek goddess venus coming from the sea right and again it continues the nautical theme and what i found interesting about this what quite ironic is even though the painting does have a lot of subtleties, one of the reasons it's so beloved is because it's very straightforward. It's a right. very straightforward depiction of Greek mythology. Unlike this film, which is not very straightforward, there's lots of different facets to it.
0: What's the pertinence of that painting to this film? What What's the story of Venus, hmm. which is important? Because Venus, is she not...
1: She's she, birthed from the cast. she's actually conceived by... She was conceived either by or in the sea. Right, and then this is her coming to land. So yeah, so she's kind of like Molly way because of again the sea captain, the the sea connection.
0: But was was Venus's father not castrated, and his sperm went into the sea?
1: And that's what it was, right? The yeah, sperm uh, built into the sea, exactly.
0: Yes. And w- do you think that's almost like this? You know, this what is happening to Molly? She, she's castrating her victims, mm-hmm.
1: and she's letting them go. Mm-hmm. She's just not throwing them into the sea. Well, in a sense, Wayne. In a sense, I did want to see in this picture. Is this supposed to be the uh, the witch uh, who comes from the sea? Because when I was reading reviews about this film, a of someone said this movie has sea, but it doesn't have a witch in it. But. <laughs> b- but <laughs> <laughs> who's to say Wayne who's to say yeah exactly but here
0: like right we were talking about you know that closet scene the very disturbing closet scene between her father and her when she was a child here's a pertinent thing at Billy Batts' party Mm mm-hmm molly's there she said to, says to billy Bart, is it true you want to go to bed with me so this is billy Bart, the film star the tv star and billy says bed floor closet <laughs> bathtub okay here's the thing how many of these conversations how many of these people are reality
1: that's the exact point because we don't know because we're seeing it from her point of view the unreliable narrator this could be someone she's making up but you know why is she making this guy to be bad is she just trying to justify what she's going to do to him
0: because she goes to his room. Mm-hmm. And you know, in 70s lingo, they're getting groovy. <laughs> so, but there's this tussle. She kisses him. She bites his lip. Yeah. She pu- he pushes her quite violently off. And there's this, you know, she says to him, you know, after they, they have this tussle, she says, Could you die for love? Well, my father did. How to Take a Lady by Billy Bath, movie star. I don't go to the movies. I do watch the goddamned four in the morning, late show. Cocksucker. Why don't you act like a man and go hide in the closet, cowboy? Quiet, naked. In the back of the
1: closet, behind your clothes. Could you die for love?
0: Well, my father did. So has she convinced herself, Wayne, that what her father has done to her is mm-hmm. some way love?
1: Yeah, it was his way of showing love to her. And in a way, maybe she feels special because he did it to her, but didn't do it to Kathy. So basically, the way she's seeing it, he just loved her in a different way. But again, I think this is that that victim mentality. Or they're trying to justify why... The person did what they did. You could almost say it's kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome.
0: Well, thing. that's going to be pertinent in a second. You said, is it that victim ma- mentality? Because Billy actually throws her out of his bedroom. Mm. People come to her aid. One of the people who come to her aid is McPeak. So yeah. McPeak is this guy from the advert, the guy who is shaving. He's, you know, he's this you know, advert star. Mm. But they go to a bar. McPeak's with his girlfriend. Long John's there. Doris is there. And she actually says to him... Because they're referring, look, Billy has this sadistic reputation. Yeah. And she says, Maybe I brought it on myself. Hmm. So how pertinent is that sentence in the Me Too movement now? How current is this? This film, in a sense, it is extremely current to the you know the woman's plight, isn't it? It's yeah it's very much
1: a female focused film and the plight of the woman. The kind of indictment of victim blaming culture.
0: Right, because she's in a sense blaming herself. When she's saying about Billy maybe i brought it on myself mm-hmm. okay well we know these men in her life aren't necessarily important to her narrative they're all in a sense s- a stepping stepping in for her father their father figures in a sense mm-hmm. so when she's saying maybe i brought it on myself she's referring to her father isn't she mm-hmm. so she's almost has this inundated sense of thinking okay what my father did it was my fault. Maybe I brought this on myself. Even mm. though that's a ridiculous sentiment. But I think that's what it's gesturing towards. I think,
1: yes. But what's interesting in this scene, everyone agrees with it because everyone just shit talks the hell out of Billy, don't they? Everyone's like, oh, he's a total arsehole. And then, bizarrely enough, Molly starts like flirting with McPeak, even right. though he's got his girlfriend sitting right next to her. So in a sense, do you think she's in a way almost portrayed as kind of a liberated character, kind of doing what she wants? Because she's openly expressing love for this man sitting at this table with the girlfriend sitting right next to him.
0: Well, is there not a conversation earlier in the film, or actually with McPeak's girlfriend who's sitting there? Hmm. McPeak's girlfriend is saying, "Look, I can't get these adverts because nobody thinks I'm a housewife, mm-hmm. and, I, and nobody's going to believe I'm married." Yes. And she says to Molly, "Look, you'd get the parts. You look like a liberated woman, which is almost a backhand
1: backhand compliment, yeah. right. Like you look like a housewife kind of right.
0: thing. You you don't look the you're not you're not the glamorous celebrity type." Yeah
1: friendly way of saying you're not as glamorous or attractive as I am
0: right but You know, McPeak's girlfriend, she has these fantasies. She thinks she could be McPeak's wife. She thinks she could be McPeak's everything. Mm. She doesn't realize she's just McPeak's woman of the week, really. She wants to go to the Great Wall of China with him. Mm. But, you know, that's not going to happen. McPeak doesn't give a shit. You know, he's portrayed as this handsome, you know, TV star. Mm -hmm. He's in these adverts. He's in these shaving adverts. He doesn't give a damn shit.
1: No, do you think he's portrayed this kind of philandering character as well? Because he just laps up all the attention he gets from Molly. I know. Because like maybe his girlfriend doesn't treat him in the same way, but it's like he's looking, because he's this TV star, he's actively looking for for adoration from people. And the fact that this woman is praising him, he just loves that. He laps it up.
0: Do you think this is the theme of the film? Everybody's just looking for something.
1: Yeah, in a sense. In a sense. It gets a good sense. Because
0: the, the celebrities who she's idolized, yeah. they, they always all seem very empty. Yeah. It's like of... McPeak's got this girlfriend. She's uh, you know, she's attractive, she's beautiful, he doesn't give a shit about her. Mm-hmm. Billy Bartz is this movie star with a cowboy hat, the Stetson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. he's a
1: piece of shit. Yeah. But in a way with Molly, she's not even sure what she's after because she's lived in this fantasy world so long of her own making. It's like it's like not even sure what she really wants deep down. Do you know what Wayne? Mm-hmm.
0: We're a bit heavy here. <laughs> Do you know how we can lighten the mood? Uh-huh. The
1: tattooist. Oh, the tattooist, yeah. Right. Early on in the film,
0: <laughs> Molly's with her two kids. Uh, two nephews. Yeah. They see this tattoo guy. <laughs> he steps from the tattoo parlor.
1: In a sinister manner, we should ask. Uh,
0: apparently in the 70s, having a face tattoo yeah. was cause for extreme alarm. It was, yeah. Because it- she grabs them kids by the shoulders. She hightails it out of there. Mm-hmm. You know what? Hmm? tattoo tattooist he laughs maniacally yeah should we be wary of tattooists from the 70s it,
1: i think it was a weird little seed planter do you know like what his surname is what dracula it was dracula like, yeah like, he's all like jack dracula or jack something. jack there's even a conversation like what's your real name he's like that is my real name he's called jack dracula which i don't know what other job could you have other than a tattooist if you were called jack dracula but be no way
0: i was i was kind of clever in that way Oh. Because that actually ties into what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because that tattooist, you know who we're making fun of. Yeah. You know he's got a tattooed face. He, he's balding with you know almost shoulder length hair. Mm. You know he, he he looks like a seventies guy. He looks like a hardened nineteen seventies guy. Mm. But wait, that tattoo parlor becomes pertinent to our story because Molly will eventually go there, and mm. she actually gets on her stomach a mermaid tattooed. Mm. And she explains to the tattooist, she says, my dad would say, come with me and we'll get lost at sea. We Mm -hmm. got lost at sea so many times. And this is what I was saying before, Wayne, the lost at sea, that analogy, It's an analogy for sexual abuse. Mm. So every time the father would abuse her, he would say, let's get lost at sea.
1: Mm -hmm. How fucking disturbing is that? It was like a euphemism he used. Yeah, how disturbing is that? It's messed up. I was thinking it was almost kind of a metaphor for being kind of like adrift in life, like Molly is. Not really sure who she is, where she's going kind of thing, but just being adrift. It's almost like she idolizes that kind of life. Like maybe she would have wanted to be at sea, despite the fact that, again, that was the term that her father used to use, which is fucked up beyond all belief so she goes to she goes to McPeak's
0: after this tattoo she's got this tattoo she's got a mermaid on her stomach right across her torso yeah, her abdomen and she goes to McPeak he asks her look come to mine and when she's at his she explains she has this sentiment she says and I think you alluded to before, television makes people so much kinder, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And this is where we get into the, you know, the psychology of why TV is so important to her. Because we cut to this scene of a young Molly. She's watching TV happily after the abuse. So TV, in a sense, has been her safety. It has been her salvation. It has got her through the years of toil and abuse mm-hmm. She's, she you know, she lived through as a child.
1: Yeah, and as we used the word earlier, escapism. Right. Because it was almost like, this is awful i get through this i get to go and watch tv so tv was the comfort for her that was what that was what took her away that's what distracted her from the horror that her her real life was and that's why she just lives these fantasies so she even has an idealized version of the TV she was watching, even if it was like crap TV, for example, it was still escape. It was still better than what she was living through at the time.
0: Right, and McPeak's girlfriend, this one who wants to go to the wall of China, she gets, you know, word of this affair. She comes, she starts shooting. A yeah. bit dramatic, Wayne. <laughs> she shoots his car up. You think that's a bit dramatic? <laughs> it was pretty crazy, <laughs> yeah.
1: She, she loses it and
0: shoots his car up. Definitely, definitely not a liberated woman. <laughs> 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 I, I don't think. Yeah,
1: I'm glad you mentioned this bit because... Uh, Around a point here, when shooting the car up, the musical score abruptly cuts off. Did you notice a lot of very abrupt cuts in this film? Yes. Lots of. I was speculating because this film originally got an X rating, it like, did, a lot, yeah. like a lot of these uh, video nasties, and it had to be cut down to an R because, like you said, it was originally released in 1976. Not released uncut in this country until 2006.
0: 2006. Was it not something like was five minutes of the f- entire film cut? Something. It like, was something like that because it was it? just
1: under an hour and a half. Right. I'm just thinking, it's pretty crazy to think that this film originally came out in the mid seventies, wouldn't be released fully in this country until I was leaving high school. Like that's how long it took. But I reckon some of the cuts, they're not that noticeable, but I think it's again, maybe little scenes they had to cut out. I don't think for pacing or for continuity. You I think, think, it think it's just...
0: actually a, uh, they're cutting that, they're cutting the excess off. They're getting the R rating. Do you yes. think that's why them sharp cuts are? That though?
1: could have been. Yeah. Cause the, the, it's, like I say, they are quite noticeable. Just like these scenes, they suddenly end. Even there's like there's even odd cuts like in the middle of situ in the middle of conversations. It just kind of stops there.
0: Did you ever find this the, this film? It feels very much like a TV show rather than a
1: film. Yeah, that's why I say when it's like a kind of extended soap opera, the way it's staged. How much of it do you think is to, down to the budget, though? I d- I don't know. See, you, you could
0: get intellectual about this and you could say, OK, this looks like a TV program or an extended TV pilot because of Molly's internalized obsession with TV, mm-hmm. because she's found this safe haven. And because this is Molly's gaze, it's extremely female gaze. We're seeing the story through her perspective. Or you could be a bit jaded and you could say, no, nah, it's because of the budget
1: yeah, oh no, no, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to try and say, I don't say that to denigrate it or anything, but I'm talking about the visuals and the audio, the dialogue, stuff like that. I'm not saying the general thematics of the film, but yeah, it has that TV so proper look about it.
0: So, so how would you think this film, right? Mm. This is Video Nasty Month, Wayne. We yes. have to get a little grimy. Mm. So, how would you think this sits in with the Proto Slasher? Because we have the two footballer guys, yeah. they're tied up. They're bound. She castrates them. Blood spurts all over her. Mm-hmm. McPeak, the guy who's shaven, the advertisement guy, when she goes to his, he addresses her by saying, why don't you shave me, hot, sweet little bitch? Now, <laughs> do you
1: think he really said that or do you think that's something her father said? Probably, Yes. Again, she's putting words into McPeak's mouth here.
0: But she's she's semi-naked or fully naked. He's mm. naked shaven. Yeah. She slashes his throat. Mm. She does away with him.
1: She's pretty strong to overpower him because he's quite a big built guy. But did you see how she overpowers Billy Ba? Eventually, she breaks his wrist. Yeah, she snapped a wrist because we see him later and he's actually got a cast on. Again, I thought she must have been pretty strong to do that.
0: So how would you think this works in the slasher mold? Do you think it's a horror... Here 's the thing do you think this film's a horror film?
1: Mm, psychological horror i'm not sure I'd say out and out horror because a lot of what 's done is not necessarily done on screen like we don't see body parts being cut off again, we see like wrists breaking, we see her kind of pushing the razor into his neck right. she pushes it and he starts bleeding, and then she moves it down his body and then castrates him so we don't see too much there's quite a amount of blood in the film
0: there's a little amount isn't there, and there is this theme throughout the film there is this Part of the film, there is detectives on her case mm-hmm. early on. Detectives, you know, they kind of get whim of of her, you know, her escapades, should we say, way <laughs> yeah. to put it politely. And one of those detectives, George Buckflower, is his real name. Great name. Who would be cast in John Carpenter's Their Fog* and *Escape from New York*? But you know, also what he was in mm-hmm. *Back to the Future* is Red the Bum.
1: Yeah, when you put that before, I'm like Red the Bum because I was thinking about because it, it's a tiny, tiny little part, but wow, he was re- <laughs> he was he was in the fog. And he was Red the Bum.
0: The Fog, <laughs> Escape from
1: New York, Red the
0: Bum in Back to <laughs> the Future.
1: That was, his, that was his career trajectory. How would you rate that one? Oh, I don't know. I th- was he not also the casting director on this film or one of the casting directors? Was he so? I think he was, yeah. I think he was in charge of a lot of, um, a lot of casting in this film, which is interesting, I guess. Save a bit of money, throw the casting director in there. But he was quite a big actor at the time, maybe. Maybe. Maybe he, was, Maybe he yeah. was a bit part actor. I don't
0: know, Wayne. I've got to say, before I watched this film, I didn't know who George Butler was.
1: For, he lived to play Red the Bum. Red the Bum. <laughs> so, yeah. But like I said, they're investigating him because we should mention Kathy has... is. Reply like repairing clothes, her job is that like she patches up clothes, yeah. You know, this is
0: the 70s people, you know, you know, they wore their little flares mm-hmm. with the patches on, patches on, yeah. Because it, it, here's a funny thing, right? Yeah, why does kathy mention that Molly is a working at a hippie bar? Is that a hippie bar? It's not a hippie bar, it's
1: like a bloody s- do you think that's just because hippie is just used in the situation as a just kind of like almost like a general slur oh those are just hippies because because
0: like. kathy says to molly at one point in this film why don't you get respectable why don't you become like a playboy bunny <laughs> is that more respectable word?
1: i don't know in fact at one point uh one character oh no kathy says to uh kathy says to molly like you could be the world's greatest cocktail waitress like, what when did, <laughs> when was that evident is that something people aspire to because like they're talking about the job it's earlier on in the film but yeah, it's a really strange thing to aspire to isn't it <laughs> That's a bizarre yeah. statement, Wayne. Yeah, look, I'm not trying to put down cocktail waitresses or anything. Oh, Wayne, you've just offended a whole litany of people. <laughs> there, there goes those fans. Uh, but like we say, the cops are investigating the case and they come to Cathy because they found... Blood. Uh, yeah, blood. And also because when Molly was killing those two footballers, she stuffed clothes in their mouth. Yes. And I think they've found those clothes and they've... I guess Kind of trace them back to Kathy, who is most worried right now about customers getting wind of this and losing her customers.
0: That's good detective work. If you can, how did it's they the... get back to Kathy?
1: I have no idea. Was she the only person in town who patched up clothes? She's the, she's the only haberdasher in town. Maybe haberdasher. Have haberdasher. you been watching
0: The Hateful Eight lately? What
1: no. No, Not for a long time, I haven't seen The Hateful Eight. You didn't like it, did you? I wasn't a big fan, no. Fuck you. <laughs> Give me Pulp Fiction, damn it. Uh, yeah, so these cops come around. They kind of pop up now and then. They're mostly kind of inconsequential. Yeah,
0: they're not pertinent to the thematics or the story of this film, are they?
1: They're not, no. It's, again, it's more about the kind of psychological breakdown of Kathy, uh, Molly. sorry. And I do want to point out one shot I really liked. There's a bit where she's sat, I think she's at Long John's house. And the, between... Ca- molly and the camera is a fish tank so it looks like she's literally underwater because we're continuing with that kind of nautical theme kind of drowning being in over her head kind of thing in the fantasy world
0: well here's a thing wayne you know when i'm really glad you brought that up mm-hmm. i think i say that every episode
1: yeah you do i'm glad i'm doing something right
0: <laughs> yeah you, you've got to put the work in somewhere wayne <laughs> yeah <laughs> right you said that right it's like a, she's drowning well wayne Here's the thing. You know every murder scene, every, you know, slasher element if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the audio of this film sounds and she starts speaking like she's underwater? Yeah right
1: yeah like the microphone's been placed in like a tank of it's water. it's very bubbly because <laughs> yeah, like yes. yeah there are scenes where like i say the music is kind of uh where the audio is dulled or it's echoey there's some scenes during arguments where it's almost kind of rattled but like i say i like how they used the sound engineering the sound mixing to emphasize these themes it was a really clever way of doing it we
0: picked a damn good film this week haven't yes, we man. what a way a good way to start video nasty month <laughs> When She came from the sea yeah i wonder how many people have seen that
1: I don't think that many folks... I'd like up. to hear.
0: Look, if if you got this far in the episode, people, let let, let us know. <laughs> Have you seen this film before? Is it the first time you've came across this film? Because it's quite interesting. I, I like this. Look, <laughs> when, we, you, when you're exploring films that, you know, aren't necessarily mainstream, <laughs> they're i I would actually say would you even say this is a cult film i know you could you know term it cult film but it's not cult in the sense you know big lebowski's
1: cult no, no or, or the room's cult different kind of thing right but it's definitely a film that i think later on gets some more appreciation because the critical consensus is pretty positive but it's still a film that like i'd never heard of this until you mentioned it if we hadn't done video nasty month i may never have heard or seen this film so I'm like a god to you, Wayne. Is this what you're saying? <laughs> you're adu- introducing these films to me, a mere mortal. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, but we're getting towards like kind of the end of the film, the, right? Well, the well, culmination I'm, of this. So
0: what happens? She gets this tattoo. We've explained it. Look, she gets this mermaid. Mm-hmm. Her father had a mermaid tattoo, didn't As well, he? Well, yeah. This is the weird thing. She's almost copying her. F- fucked up father she hates
1: him but she's emulating him at the same time so she
0: tears at her naked ad- abdomen after mm. she kills mcpeak she's almost can't cope with it she wakes up beside long john you know mm. he owns the boathouse this this bar she works at. she tells him the blood is from where she tried to remove the tattoo with a razor mm. we know that's not <laughs> true it-
1: i'm pretty sure there's instances where it looks like the tattoo has kind of rubbed off <laughs> like you can tell it's just been drawn on what well, do you think
0: it's just, it's, it's just been stenciled on I, know,
1: I think she just needed a wet cloth she could have taken that off okay but yeah that's a pretty don't, freaky don't scene. suspend
0: she, disbelief here
1: <laughs> she wakes up in bed next to London and just blood everywhere yeah, and she's like kind of like constantly rubbing herself because there's a lot of like um, like topless nudity in this especially for Millie Perkins which which
0: you, you actually said it was your favourite element of the film didn't you
1: what the nudity <laughs> <laughs> Did I mention that? <laughs> I uh, joke. But I'm joking. Again, I think. Do you think that was almost what more the the kind of nasty term uh, was back then? The fact it was there was a lot of kind of female nudity in it and it was done very casually as well
0: no I actually don't I think it comes back to this Kimber's claim that back then nobody back then as I mentioned before he quoted nobody back then ever dealt with trauma these subjects never belong in movies movies were entertainment I don't Mm. I don't necessarily think this was a video nasty because of the explicitness because Mm. of the blood because of of the gore or the horror elements it was because the themes were too heavy Mm. And it was done in a way that it wasn't necessarily a straight drama. Mm. It, it, it's it's dealing with these issues, but in a very genre-heavy way. Mm. And in that way, it makes it more salacious because mm. it's not dealt in. You know, it's not a, it's not an Oscar bait movie, is it? No. So to the unbenounced, this could be seedy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I can see. I see what you're saying. But what I like is again because you're saying the the violence the gore the nudity uh, etc that's not what made it a nasty it's the underlying themes the very almost uncomfortable themes for maybe like a lot of, a lot of people too close to home kind of I themes. think so do that's do we, do, you? do you? yeah i think would so would you that's, agree that's what rod well like you say kimber said people weren't doing that in films at the time So this was new. This was fresh. People weren't ready for it.
0: Especially in this way. There's not a prestige director attached. Mm. You know, we mentioned Taxi Driver, but there's no Scorsese. Mm. So what you're left with, this is the grindhouse version. This is the bare bones version. The uninitiated version, Mm. isn't it?
1: Yeah, this is the real like, kind of ugly side of life that nobody wants to talk about. And because people weren't ready for it at the time, because we've talked about, how the the video Nasty Scare, how it was reactionary. People seeing this film, it's the same kind of thing here. People weren't ready to deal with this theme and rather than giving the film a chance, they just wanted rid of it.
0: But there is pertinence to this film. There's funny elements to this film. Mm-hmm. There is humorous elements to this film because the detectives, they question, you know, sleazy actor Billy Buck Yeah. And they say to him, look, whatever happened to McPeak? Turn on your television set, find out what's going on in the real world, they say to him. Mm-hmm. And he says, thanks, not till the sun goes down. The camera zooms in. It has for a peak, they say. Mm. I mean, that is that cheesy kind of television style writing we were going yeah. about. The, the explicit zooms in, those kind of one-liners, you know, thanks, not till the sun goes down, the detectives. It has for McPeak. Yeah,
1: there should almost be like a dun dun dun. I think there was Wayne. I think there was. Or or like a psycho did 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 kind of yes, thing. Yes, yes, yes. But leads us into the final. Let's scene get to where... the
0: denouement. The we're denouement. getting to the end of the film. Mm-hmm. This is the end. This this is the jig just to the film. This is where we're going. This is where all this has led up to. Mm-hmm. And you know this repressed Molly. She's repressed all these emotions. She's gone on a killing spree, which we you know we're left in tandem. Is this a current? Is this a fantasy? But no, it actually
1: has been going. On hasn't it? So, how do we end it, Wade? Let's get to it. Yeah, well, like you say, talking about the repression with Molly, in a sense, because she keeps getting these flashbacks, she keeps getting these snippets of her past. It's almost like we're learning about her past just as she is, and we see this scene where. Basically, the dad was sexually assaulting her, and in the process, he had a heart attack and died.
0: Which I think is a very, he's abusing her, he dies on her while he's abusing her. He's yeah. had his heart attack, he falls onto her, which yeah. is an analogy, Wayne. Why is that pertinent? And I'll say, which I think is my interpretation of that, he could have died anyway. He could have died, he could have been abusing her and rolled to the side, but he dies on top of her. And yeah. this is an analogy for the mental toll, she's trapped, she's left. Left with it, she can't escape it. That's yeah. why he dies on
1: top of her. Yeah, she carries the guilt and she kind of, in a way, physically carries him around physically forever. and metaphorically. Yes, yeah, and that's, that is, that's why he dies on top of because her because that is now burned into her psyche for for the rest of her life. And it's like she's murdering men's, she was murdering men throughout the film almost so she can imagine killing her father. Because, in a sense, she feels like she did kill her father. She feels like, oh, it was like my fault that this happened, right? Again, that that messed up victim mentality
0: well she finally cops to this incident she finally says to you long john and doris about the murders she references them she says doesn't it matter that i didn't hate any of them except (laughs) that first little bastard his mother sang on tv and he sang with her and he thought he was hot shit he was pretty but he said i wasn't pretty he said i wasn't really a girl so here's the thing Wayne.
1: Mm -hmm. she killed when she was younger Mm-hmm. she killed her little schoolmate didn't she mm-hmm. so this is something that she's actually grown up with as well so it's taken like from that point like from that childhood it's something that's followed her through her whole life it's almost become her reality because we are talking about living in a fictional world yeah this has like been her reality ever since so, she was a child
0: so here's the thing when nurture or nature molly's essentially a serial killer mm-hmm. so on the flip side, we're dealing with these uh, ideas. Has she was she born this killer, or have, was she nurtured this way because of her father's abuse?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's with the father's abuse. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with that interpretation. Yeah, I'd say that as well. Yeah, but, yeah, but, like, but, yeah. but we're toying with these ideas, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Because you never know; it could have been. She could have been on that path already and this just expedited it, facilitated it. Or maybe this is the turning point in her life. This is what drove her down this dark path.
0: Yeah, fuck Papa Molly. He's a dick.
1: <laughs> Asshole, lost at sea. And then she. But was he lost at sea? That, no, he wasn't. He was He was buried. The whole, yeah, the whole lost at sea thing, I think that was still just like an analogy. It was a
0: gallant, you know, concoction in her memory.
1: Yes, it's a romanticized version of, of his death. But the... The boys come back, the Tad and Tripoli.
0: So Tad <laughs> and Tripoli enter this scene, don't they? So Molly's cop to this to Long John and Doris. They're feeding their pills. It's all, we're, we're at this stage where, look, she can't escape this. The authorities know what's occurred.
1: She's further and further sedating herself. Right.
0: And they're, in a sense, giving her a mercy way out. Yeah. A mercy kill, a mercy suicide, mm-hmm. whichever way you want to put it. And they know her plight. Todd and Tripoli come. Because as I said before, she's welcomed in. The kids are the innocents. They're going to be there when she dies. Mm -hmm. They even feed her some pills. That's fucked up. What did you think of that? Exactly, that was The kids feed her some pills.
1: They're, They're trying, like you say, trying to give her a mercy killing because at least she's going to go out, you know, when she's surrounded by family members, surrounded by people who she at least loves. She even says about Todd and Tripoli, she says, these are my boys. Yes. Like she feels such a connection to them. That it's extra tragic, the fact it's them giving her pills to facilitate this passing.
0: But here, I've got something for you, Wayne. Oh, yeah. We're right re- right at the end now. So is this, for Molly, a happy ending or a sad ending? And let me pose this to you, right? They feed her the pills, Right. She dies as the detectives arrive. So in that sense, right, we've escaped justice, in a sense, Mm -hmm. right, for the the murders. But here's the thing. The very thing this film ends on, we end on an image of her, right? And she's floating on her own into the middle of the sea on a little raft. A little raft, yeah. Right. So what do we know about her father? He says, come with me, we'll get lost at sea. Mm. Is that meaning... She can't escape the inevitable. The abuse happened, and now she's floating away at sea, and that's an analogy for even in death, her father is with her.
1: Yeah, well, that's that belief that you know when you die, you go, you go to, you know, you're reunited with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, etc. Right. So in a way, yes, because now they're both going to be out to sea together.
0: So, so let's jostle with this idea because it's pertinent to the end of this film. Right? She's floating away on her own. Is that a happy ending? Does she get some peace? Or is it a stand-in for what her father said earlier?
1: Well, I think you could say it's a very double-edged sword, yeah. couldn't you? Because she's escaped this reality that was not happy for her at all. She's gone on, you know, shuffled off the mortal coil. She's gone on to the you know, the great gig in the sky, but her She's not a musician, Wayne. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> she's gone off to the ocean in the clouds, but her father could be there with her. Right. So there's that, but she's going to look on this as a good thing because she's now reunited with a father who she praised the entire time despite everything
0: do you think to the end of this film the whole way through she's remained repressed yeah and she's had a you know a good image of her father for the whole entire film
1: i feel like she was almost learning about her past at the same time we were. You reckon? I think that's why it's interesting because we see all these flashbacks, but we don't get the most important one until the very end. Because that's when. So it hits her at the same time it really hits us.
0: So wh- how do you take that ending? How do you... Tell me now. Mm,
1: I see it as... Is
0: it a positive for her or is it a negative for her?
1: I think it's probably more of a negative. You
0: think? I kind of think that as well. Yeah,
1: because that's it. She's drifting off again, reunited with her father, even though that's the last thing that should happen because yeah, you could say, well, you know, it's happy because she's finally free of this ugly reality. But she spent the whole film trying to be free of reality anyway. She yeah. was always trying to, trying to move on from that.
0: Wayne, yeah, I love this film.
1: I think this is a great film. I this really like it. Really like it. Great film to kick off Video Nasty Month. The fact that we can do a film that's not as well known but is still a nasty sounded weird, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: well a nastily good time <laughs> Ooh, a, a, yeah. nastily good a nastily time. good time I should have no, left that to the end that should have been our target the should end. Be the target at the end yeah. been the but it's,
1: it's a film it's obviously got budgetary limitations the editing is a bit weird the sound can be funny and so can the acting but it's really elevated by complex psychology it's got a central acting turn which is better than exploitation films deserve it's childhood trauma ex- uh, explored in a very interesting way it's got great visuals yeah, it's a very interesting film.
0: Some critics, Wayne, mm-hmm. they actually would say this is the best film that was under the banner of the Video Nasties.
1: Mm. Well, Yeah, maybe. I'm not saying I'm, I'm agreeing, agreeing with I've not seen enough Video Nasties to, to give that, that kind of judgment. Maybe
0: by the end of the month, Wayne. Possibly, yes. We'll see by the end of the month. Mm.
1: It's definitely one of the most complex I've ever seen. Very
0: complex. Okay, we've explained this as a psychological drama, haven't we? Mm -hmm. It's core, more than a horror film. Yes, definitely. So does it rank or does it compare? Does it reach the heights? How close are we getting to Taxi Driver? Because if we're talking the 70s, we could make the argument that Taxi Driver is the height of a psychological drama. Same year as well. Same year. So where are we getting, Wayne? How, if Taxi Driver's the peak of our totem pole, how mm-hmm. close are we getting? I when we when we strip away the limitations of budgetary and we're just focusing on the core of this story.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd say somewhere, I'm going to say somewhere kind of in the upper echelons. I'm not right. going to put it up as high as you taxi. No, go, no. But I'm going to say its reputation should be much greater than it is. Here's the thing, Wayne, because I
0: we, we don't know much about Robert Tom and... Mark Kimber.
1: I'd never heard of them until I started researching do this. Do
0: you think if this material was given in the hands of a Scorsese, a filmmaker of that ilk, mm-hmm. do you think this could have been a mainstream classic?
1: I think so, yeah, because then you have the big name attached right. to it. So you have you kind of have the prestige of having, be like if Spielberg directs a movie, even if you've got no idea what it's about, it's a Spielberg thing, so it's going to get all the promotion. But this, Yeah flew under a lot of radars. Well, obviously not the BBFC. They hated it. Well,
0: (laughs) you know, we hate censorship. (laughs) I I think that's obvious.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think it's quite clear. But for this film, for me, this was great. I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. Watched it several times. Yeah, for me, this is a very, very solid recommend. I'm very glad we're kicking off. I'm looking forward to the rest of Video Nasty Month. I'm very glad we kicked off with The Witch Who Came From the Sea.
0: We've often said, Wayne... When we relate to the audience, look, we've watched the film several times. Well, do you know what? Mm-hmm. I would almost say this film is enriched several times. Mm-hmm. When you've saw it several times, you, there's little nuances you maybe didn't get the first time. Mm-hmm. So I think with this film, listener, watch it more than once and you'll be rewarded with the subtlety and the nuance of a deeper, more meaningful story.
1: Now that we've concluded our first foray into our video nasty month, join us next week where we'll be diving into Joseph Ellison's nineteen eighty shocker, Don't Go In the House. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next week where we'll discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the
0: mainstream.
1: God, i